yeah, so uh, today we don't have Marshall available, and I thought that what we would do is we would use this episode to kind of uh, outline the programmatic uh, of this podcast. Um, and so, you know, uh, Lennon famously said that there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen, right? And so he was obviously, uh, I think, much more concerned with the second part of that sentence. Uh, but I think what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to tackle the first part, right? The, the decades when nothing happened. Um, and uh, try to um, maybe dig into the question of uh, why it seems that we are stuck in this sort of, um, we're stuck in a, like a quagmire, right? Where uh, nothing seems to move, no, nothing seems to progress forward. Even the progress that is made seems to be uh, either of a very uh, qualified nature or uh, is just a kind of, or just, you know, just lacks any of the things that we expected uh, from like genuine progress as, you know, people were sold it, let's say after World War II or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and it kind of uh, is an attempt to, I, su I suppose, to explain the name of the show itself, which is, you know, the same but worse. And that itself is a uh, kind of like uh, an allusion to, of course, the famous intro, uh, Marx's famous intro to the 18th Brumaire, where he says that, uh, you know, all great personages, uh, Hegel remarked that all great personages appear twice, but he forgot to say that the, the first, the second time is farce, right? So it feels like we're living in that world where everything is appearing this, the same but worse, the second time is farce. I, I suppose it's, I think it's, you know, valuable to try and sit down and figure out like, why, why the hell does this, does this keep happening, right? Yeah. And so uh, we're going to try to like outline, uh, I think, a program for where we're going to take the, the, the next couple of shows. Um, broadly speaking, I think uh, the idea was to begin with sort of the 70s and work our way historically through to the present day, you know, with pit stops at the you know, fall of the USSR and the global financial crisis and all that good stuff, all the all the hits. Uh, but that's that's the big signposts. And uh, this episode is going to be about kind of hashing out like what we are trying to achieve and uh, what kinds of uh, what kinds of things we're going to be talking about. What do you think of that, Andrew? I think that sounds good. I mean, you know, I, I maybe interpret the, the, the show's title a little bit differently just in that I feel like each day is just the same but worse. You know, it's like this is sort of how we seem to be marching forward is just sort of well, slouching forward, I guess. It's just sort of like it's hard to say what's different. It's just that you you can't you can't help but suspect that it's just a little it's a little bit worse and I think there was I think that's a line also from uh, the the Michelle Welbeck uh, essay about COVID itself you know is which is of course you know sort of the texture of reality at this point is is like the obsession with COVID as like the number one danger to the exclusion of all other dangers I think in the sense that like you know the the entire world has been has become governed by one sort of metric and that metric being well something to do with covid whether that's deaths or hospitalization rates or infection rates or whatever but you know well anyways we don't need to get too much into covid i guess <laughs> you know i i'm I, and and maybe on a more like longer time scale i i think there's also something to the idea that like this is sort of the trajectory of the post fordist or you know post 1970s like when we stopped being a manufacturing economy and started being a financial economy 
and stopped being a New Deal state and started being a neoliberal state, things just get, they just feel the same, but a little bit worse. And things, that's how, that's how it's been going. So, uh, and I'm, I'm very interested in just sort of looking at like, why, why is that? Let's, let's look at some of the, the historical events, because obviously things have happened. It's not like nothing happens, but let's look at the historical event, kind of think about like, uh, what would need to happen for there to be something different for it not to be the same to begin with. Of course, I think, unfortunately, it seems most likely that it'll be just different, but worse. Um, <laughs> if, if indeed we break out of this, this cycle or whatever. On that front, I've been thinking about just sort of how like the tools in the toolbox for like what you're supposed to do when things aren't good just seem like so woefully inadequate. And I, I'm interested in your thought on this is just sort of like when, when something bad happens, when, for instance, like, like I live in, you know, I live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, when, when George Floyd was killed, people went out into the streets because that's what you do. You know, you go out in the streets, you protest. It's interesting. It's like, why is that what you do? Is that actually doing anything? It's really hard to tell like what exactly happened there. I mean, there was a lot of catharsis. I mean, I, you know, just watching the the police station burn down was like, wow, something's happening, you know, like it or hate it. That, that was definitely something new, but then it's, there's, there's no impetus there, you know, in, and everything just, I feel like the energy that, that existed there, that I, I don't know if it ever had a chance to really get, have anything or except, or just to sort of be let off steam in these sort of like nonprofit world slash culture war slash you know, just people just arguing about like whether, what exactly it means to defund the police and, you know, whether it's good and whether, whether you can win with that message and blah, 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 blah. It all just becomes like a same sort of part of the spectacle. But then, you know, I don't know what, if that means you're not supposed to go out in the streets or if that just means that like, I don't know what it means, you know, but, but it seems to me that we are just so disaggregated, so atomized, so hyper individuated that these, these things that I think these social actions, like the, we do the movements of them, because in the past, when you did those movements, there was something for it to catch on to. There was like a coherent thing that would then that could then sort of effectuate like a subsequent action from that spontaneous like movement of people, whether that's like protesting in the street or I don't know, calling your Congress, you know, representative or whatever, and, and like, you know, putting pressure on on elected representatives to do something or any of these sort of like mainstream typical ways that people react when they want something different or even just voting for that matter that perhaps in the past there was some more coherent sort of thing for that to to let to to be taken up in and that now with every it now it just feels like you're just punching the sand you know it's like <laughs> I, I it just it all sort of dissipates in that same way like the force is just sort of spread out among a million different granules all of whom are like watching the news and you know now we've all been trained to be pundits too where it's like we can't like anything we have to question whether whether oh you know it's not whether I like whether I want to defund the police or whatever I'm just using that as an example but like it's actually whether like I as the pundit of every of this conversation think that that's a message that's going to play well with other people I mean it's just like concern trolling but for politics like electoral politics basically so anyways, we, you know, so I guess we exist in a space where like everyone has their, is just their own self, but no one really has the courage of their convictions. And, you know, that's just, it, it's, it's hard to know like what you're supposed to do as, as just like one person in this milieu to like bring about some sort of change or even like 
to think about how it would even be possible for anyone to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, there was a, when you started talking, so uh, one thing I wanted to note is that, you know, this, uh, the, the name of the show, right. Is, uh, it's great because it admits like multiple interpretations. Right. Oh yeah. And the sameness, you know, it's, it has a fractal quality about it. Right. It's like, you can, you can track it over decades. You can track it over days. Uh, and it reminded me of this, um, uh, account that, uh, I find very amusing. It's a, it's an account called life in Russia and every day it tweets the same thing. Uh, which is that everything is worse today than it was yesterday. That's just the whole, that's just what it tweets every single day. Um, and, and when you started talking about a lot like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, uh, you know, you, you really hit on something there, I think, in talking about um, how, yeah, we used to have this understanding that, okay, like when, when something happened, right, you, you went out and protested, you, uh, you did this, that, or the other thing, right? You sort of ex expended these efforts, and those you you had the expectation that those efforts would yield some kind of payoff, right? Whether something might get changed, whether your representatives might do something about it, um, and now I, I think it's totally correct that you you feel like okay, you can go out, you can protest, and nothing, like absolutely nothing, will change, right? And, you know, since since the George Floyd protests of 2020 which are uh oh my god almost two years off now right because that broke out in march march of 2020 is that right i think so right <laughs> like now now that we live in covid time i'm like my entire uh conception of uh, of reality is uh sorry just just to correct you it was uh i think i believe it was uh end of may 2020 that's that's a year and a half ago that's a year and a half that's a long time uh in that time I, i'm not aware of any major changes that have happened to like for example like any police department at any in any major american city like maybe it happened and i just don't know about it but i've been following the news pretty closely on this and it just i have not heard of any like substantive reforms i have not heard of any kind of legislature legislation that's even in the works to fix these things and yeah it feels like the whole the whole movement has been sort of memory hold by the media like nothing like it existed and then it passed and now everything is like the way it was before sorry just to interrupt for just a yeah, second. yeah yeah there was there was a ballot measure in in minneapolis to that's right you know not quite abolish the police, but, you know, to do something pretty significant to the police department there, which failed, uh, um, was vehemently opposed by sort of the real estate lobby mayor, who is the mayor of Minneapolis, who uh, is, in my opinion, a, just an odious figure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, like, the I think that the, the abolish the police discourse has is... Uh, well, we don't need to get into the specifics of that because it's not something that I know too much about, uh, just like the, the actual policy of it or whatever. But like, I mean, the Democrats basically ran their elections on not exactly tough on crime, but like, you know, something in that neighborhood. Like they're and you know, their whole their campaign message certainly did not embrace any sort of radical uh, re reform package to police departments or federal policing or anything like that so there's definitely this feeling right that everything that's that's happening right now is kind of uh it's a, it's a simulacrum it's a uh uh it's a kind of a cargo cult enactment of 
of, of actual social change, right? And that's not a that's not a statement on the people who are you know were out there in the streets protesting, right? It's not their fault. It's just that like it feel it feels like yeah you're you have the forms of the of the thing, uh, but what you don't have is any of the substance that follows it, right? I mean, people exactly. like, you, you have one half kind of 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 the equation where people are doing stuff uh, and trying to make stuff happen, and then you have the other half of the equation where it's like no, we're just gonna run it back. We're not going to change anything. You know, part of this, I think, has something to do with, um, or at least part of the feeling that's associated with this has something to do with the fact that, you know, for us, a lot of the stuff that happened uh, that that did, you know, cause things to move, right, is historic, right? So we can look back on it and say, okay, that happened. That's already passed. That's done. Right. And I'm sure that if, at the moment, none of that looked like, you know, you didn't know that that was like fait accompli or whatever. You, you had no reference point for finding out like was this going to change the future or not um so a lot of that is kind of the i think the timeline of historical perspective that we're able to sort of look back on but at the same time i think that looking at that history and reading just like the reactions to it um it does feel like there was something there in the past that isn't there today right like Whatever you want to call, let's say, you know, if we're talking about like the civil rights protests, right? Uh, that was, you know, extremely long and arduous road that was walked by, you know, generations of people. But I think when things started to, you know, when things started to sort of, I guess, reach a boiling point, especially, you know, I, I think this was after the Watts riots of 66, Um you know, there was like an actual federal commission that was formed, right? The Kerner Commission was formed to investigate, like understand, like why did the riots happen? Uh, and produced, I think, a fairly trenchant report on the, um, you know, the consequence of American racism. And it's hard to imagine like uh, a Kerner Commission today. Like it's just not something that really even enters into the public imagination. Uh, and that actually goes for not, not, just, not just things like that, but things like, uh, for example, you know, talking about the... Um, the functioning of, you know, what other people, some people might call like the deep state, but, you know, I think more accurately is probably referred to as a national security state um, where, you know, again, CIA abuses were uncovered and there was like a whole senatorial commission that was uh, yeah. you know, led by Frank Church uh, that. Well, there was also and there was also the Rockefeller Commission as well. And I think there was actually a third commission. The church one was either in this. There was a House commission, too. I think the, the church commission was a Senate commission, I think. But yeah, that's right. There was also the, like I believe there was a. Uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Well, it doesn't matter, but uh, sorry, to, if I can interrupt and just yeah, you yeah. Know, post something about before we get too far away from the civil rights thing. And it just shows that there is a salience to have to like the world context in which these things happen, because, you know, yes, the, the civil rights movement was a long road to walk and it involved a lot of uh, activists ranging from, you know, what we would consider to be fairly like liberal activists to people who are like genuinely like left figures of the kind that like even on our supposed left we don't really have people that left anymore but the, the you know the one of the things that significantly opened up that road was the fact that like the in the post-colonial like world system like in in the context of decolonization it was no longer viable for the u.s to like maintain its global hegemony in like this dual duopolistic world system and conflict with the soviet union uh, and to have, you know, a, a du jour segregation in a major part of its, you know, uh, formerly in, uh, former slave territory of former enslaved persons being 
de jure segregated. Obviously, you know, de facto segregation continues to this day, but that pressure is a major important point of like why even like the powers that be were amenable to changing things in a very significant way. And uh, maybe there is some kind of multipolarity emerging now with, I guess, the rise of China and um, and I guess just sort of the, well, I mean, just the, the stark contrast between China and the way it's reacted to COVID versus, you know, the entire Western world and the way it's essentially collapsed. <laughs> and civil society is just, you know, pretty much in ruins and like, the only sort of two ways that you can react are to say that it, you know, it's not real or it's not worth caring about at all, or that it's the only thing to care about and that, you know, heaven help you if you don't follow the same, like, uh, folkways and pieties that I do about the, the best way to deal with it or whatever. You know, obviously in China, they've just, it's not like things are completely back to normal or whatever, but like, they have handled it in a way where like life goes on. Life goes on here, but not in this, not, it's not the same. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, go back. Yeah, no, let's I, continue I think with that. I think it's a very important point, right? Uh, that that bipolar world did have an effect to, to the in the sense that to the extent that the United States had to pass itself off as a paragon of virtue, it was difficult to sustain the tension between exactly as you say, a subaltern population in the former slave states and simultaneously being sort of the uh whatever the exponent of democracy in the world right it's it's like uh not to say that people couldn't have done it if they wanted to but i think it was really hard and there was certainly was international pressure from uh uh from many sides to that fought against that right i would add also it became much harder and less tenable uh in the face of decolonization because when it was only sort of the other uh white imperial powers that you had to sort of glad hand and please then you know, they perfectly understood something like having a subaltern racial pop, like, you know, subclass. Right. You had to, you had to make a case to, uh, you know, what was then called, I guess, the third world that, exactly. um, uh, that, that we had your best interests in mind. And again, yeah, that's hard to do. Uh, well, and with, it, that uh, was in a context of course, of, you know, something, you know, third worldism being, uh, the most salient political ideology in those areas and the most the one that had the most juice in the wires was a far left wing essentially Maoist inspired ideology in a lot of those places anyways uh sorry I interrupted no that's okay uh but I, but I think there's uh I think that's definitely a part of it but there's a kind of a larger picture I think that um that, that that's operating here uh because you know something like the church commission you look at it and say okay well um you know, was that was that directly related to American uh, American reputation abroad? I mean, probably somewhat related, uh, but also, you, you know, my my sense of it is that it was driven largely by considerations of like domestic politics. Spying abroad has always been, I think, broadly tolerated. You know, for I. I for, for worse, I would say, um, you know, in American domestic politics. Uh, but, you know, this was an investigation into like spying on, on Americans, right? I mean, that's what touched off the whole the whole investigation, right? So it was driven primarily by domestic politics. But there was still this sense, I think, that if something happened, right, if the, the, there was there was a role for like legislators and 
the government in general to like actually do something about it like people like that that was a commission that had like real power and that uh affected like real reforms i mean well you could say that those reforms maybe weren't sufficient uh 50 years down the line but for the time you know they they really did come up with like some kind of solution uh to the problem they were facing and again uh it's just it, almost impossible for me to imagine a similar situation today and in fact we've seen similar situations where for example uh, you know we had the commission on torture uh where just like absolutely nothing came out of it you know the report was released and it, it exists and nobody did anything nobody has decided nobody has used as far as i know any of that information to make any policy changes it's just none of this none of this has gone anywhere and so again you have this uh process of you 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 carry out the forms of the act but there's no substance behind it and i think that this is a much deeper problem in a sense than just the question of like multipolarity right <laughs> because because it, it it's a it's a problem that seems to affect uh not just the federal government but like every form of collective action at every single level in american life um and that's that's a really like really depressing thing to look at um whether you want to whether you want to talk about police reform whether you want to talk about just like building infrastructure whether you want to talk about like uh you know uh solving like housing problems just any of that like any of the kinds of things that uh state action would have uh carried out in the past none of that seems to be available just to, in, at all um you know it's hard to like there there are things in place there are programs in place obviously that have been sort of that have accreted over the years and those are you know maintained or you know if not maintained then well some places are completely slashing them but at least in you know in some in in a lot of places they're at least sort of they they remain as sort of like these vestigial organs of uh, of state capacity but to think about like building something new or to solve like a novel problem it just it feels like nobody just nobody is really like giving it any thought um yeah it's uh it's a real bummer um well you know i was struck by uh you know you're saying i mean i think you're correct i believe that that one of the main uh impetus uh i think the main impetus for the church commission was uh it wasn't like the i forget what the student group was called but this the cia had basically infiltrated like uh this uh, like a, a educational congress or something like that. And they'd also, there was a scandal involving, uh, I think, Ramparts magazine that basically was, um, so yeah, like spying on Americans. Then of course, you know, a, a perfect counterpose to that is like uh, James Clapper lying to Congress about whether the CIA and NSA spied on Americans and nothing happened. You know, you brought up torture. I mean, it's, it's the things that happened in that are just like what happened with torture. You know, the if anything, the people who were involved in it got promoted. I, I just, uh, I'm just going to break in. Um, you know, it's it, it, since we're talking about torture, uh, there's a beautiful bookend here because uh, I looked it up, uh, and the uh, investigations themselves were prompted by uh, a report by none other, or an article by none other than Seymour Hirsch. Uh, who was who wrote about uh, various uh, abuses of uh, CIA power, uh, and of course, you know, Hirsch is also the the person who broke the um, uh, the Abu Ghraib story. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he's this kind of weird bookend to uh, all of these um, uh, to, to 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 this entire kind of 
period of time and this is a great i'm just looking at the wikipedia page right now it says the creation the church committee was approved on january 27th 1975 by a vote of 82 to 4 in the senate i i i literally cannot imagine like what kind of thing well i can't imagine uh it's havana uh, syndrome havana syndrome investigations uh but but like nothing that is actually like substantive uh would ever get 82 votes right senate today it's just absurd to think about what I think part of what's happened, and I think you're right, it's not just like a multipolarity collapse, is that we live in a different world now, and the, the kinds of people who've been recruited to to, fill, to fulfill these positions in this world have nothing to do with the kinds of people who served in those positions in the old world, where, you know, in the old world, when you were in politics, you would do things. In today, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if there's a better sort of avatar for this than Obama, but like, you know, basically, you're just a caretaker. You, you sit there and your job is basically to like be in the room, know that you can't do anything other than what's preordained by capital, essentially, uh, and then write, you know, several thousand page autobiographies about how you felt so bad about various things, but there was only one thing to be done. I mean, that's, you know, that's the, 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 the role of the caretaker of empire. And, you know, people like Obama because he was smart and he, you know, he could, he could say nice words and he could, uh, uh, he could, you know, be a, a a diverse face for, you know, the in a in a diverse world for the American Empire. But at the end of the day, you know, the the kinds of thing like his sort of ability to command anything, other than I guess just like blowing people out of the sky with, uh, in various parts of the Muslim world with, uh, you know, stealth drones or whatever, uh, including American citizens, of course. You know, his ability to do anything like when it comes to these big questions of like. Uh, are we going to make the banks whole or make the homeowners whole? Well, you know, can't do anything about that. You just got to give the money to the banks. Um, there's there's nothing else that can possibly be done. And that's because the kind of person who's who becomes president now is that kind of person. Because that's the kind of person who's needed to do that kind of thing. It's not like there's a conspiracy about it. It's just like, if you're rooted out at some point in the process, if you're someone who thinks that the presidency is something other than, than that, because that is what it is. I don't know, like, I, this is a, an interesting question is like, well, what if somehow Bernie Sanders had broken through and really, you know, and got, had become president? Is it the case that the office is just not the kind of office that is amenable to the kinds of things that he was going to do or going to want to do? Um, like, can you actually do anything? Um, or are you just sort of like in these golden handcuffs of uh, where you just get to sit in the nice chair and, and give the big speeches, but like at the end of the day, uh, you're not the one making the decisions? It's very interesting because there's this kind of big disconnect between the actual formal power that like the president has, for example, and the way that that power is used. Um, I know if, like people remember this, but uh, around the time of the inauguration, uh, the American Prospect had uh, this really nice um, list of, gosh, I can't remember what the actual, the, fi the final number was, but it was something like 100 items um, on the order of 100 items, let's say, uh, that was about, um, it was they called it the day one agenda. And it was about the various things that the president could do, that Joe Biden could do uh, on, on day one with just an executive order. And some of those things, you know, whatever, if you if you want to play a lawyer, you can say some of those are like more likely to be done, less likely to be done uh, in, in terms of in terms of legality. But you could do, you could try doing them. 
legality is just fake at that level anyway. I mean, that's right. That's you know, right. But you could do, you could try it's not to do fake. It. It's just, it's just politics. You know, it's like, do you, uh, and obviously like there's plenty of things that you could do them. And then because of the way that like the array of power is, I mean, there's six conservatives on the Supreme court. They're not going to let you do a lot of things. And that, that's the only thing that like law means. Sorry, just, just to interrupt. No, there. no, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree, but notwithstanding all of that, right. Uh, all, all that stuff takes time, right? So, but you can imagine like coming into office in, uh, you know, and having, let's say, a hundred executive orders ready, you know, to do whatever it is that the American Prospect recommends doing, which I no longer remember, but, uh, you know, should uh, check it out because there was a lot of good stuff in there. Um, you know, ending student debt was one of them, but there were many, many things in there. Uh, you know, Dave Dayana really knows his stuff. So, it's one thing to say, OK, well, the court, you know, would have struck it down, blah, blah, blah. There would have been opposition. Yeah, all that is true. But you could also say, OK, well, we'll just throw a bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks. Right. Like can't hard to hard to, hard to strike down all of it. Right. To be clear, just because the court would strike something down, I think that it's like, you know, anyone committed to doing to like actually doing anything instead of just sitting there while things are done, which is what people do now. Uh, but anyone committed to actually doing anything. That includes, in my opinion, doing things that you know are going to run up against a brick wall simply for the, the purpose of showing that the brick wall exists because I That's think right. that people don't really understand the contours of, of how things work, you know? Yeah, yeah 100%. And this would, show, this would show in a visceral way that like, I wanna do this, but I can't. Of course- That's right, that's right. There's very few things now that that, that first part, the, the, the prerequisite to that, the, you know, the predicate to that of saying, I want to do something, well, I mean, you know, Joe Biden has shown that there's a couple things he wants to do uh, in the foreign policy arena that he's able to kind of do unilaterally. Like, I mean, the drone strikes are are way down under him and obviously pulled out of Afghanistan and everything. And those are things that are largely the president's prerogative. And I don't think you can say anything, but great job and keep up the good work on that on that front. But um, but, you know, when it comes to these other things, uh, testing the boundaries of sort of the norms is not exactly something that the Democrats are uh, you know, is in their playbook. Uh, they would, <laughs> I mean, I have a whole analysis of that that basically sums up to their politics is the norms. They don't have anything that they want to do, really, uh, in the sense that like what they, the, the primary driving force for them is upholding the system, is keeping things working the way they are in a procedural fashion. And so the procedure for them is, you know, when the procedure is the substance, that means that like you are not going to say, I want to do something and then Supreme Court, let, let's see what they say about it. And let's show that, you know, this barrier exists. They don't want to show that barrier exists. Of course, they deny that the Supreme Court is political to begin with, which is one of the most insane. Uh, I mean, it's just so contrary to reality, it's hard to really believe. I mean, that, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, if you wanted to do something right, you could you could just you could do it and you could you could take that fight, let's say, into the public arena. Right. And the fact that, like, basically none of that actually happened is sort of. You know, it's very disheartening, right? Because this is one of those things where, uh, you know, a lot of people um, understandably animated after the, the Trump years were like, OK, we're going to get we're going to get somebody competent in there. They're going to do do some good things for us. And then just like, OK, you know, some legislation has moved. But by and large, uh, when you look at, um, <laughs> you know, when you when you look at the universe of possibilities uh even uh granting that some of them may be of like sort of questionable uh questionable legality uh nonetheless like that universe is very large 
Um, and we have explored very small parts of it. And, you, and again, you can see this. This is a fractal situation where you see this uh, going all the way down, um, you know, down to the local level, down, down to the state level, down to the local level. Uh, it's very unusual to actually see somebody trying to, like, solve real problems. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know, like, who, you know, I don't know. I, I live in New York City. Right. Um, and. You know, just like like literally like, I don't know, fixing uh, a fixing potholes is is like a multi-year endeavor. Like it, not just I, I don't mean like I, this is not an exaggeration. Right. I mean, it takes like it takes years to do like the procurement to fix like normal just things that break in the city. This isn't even like necessarily a substantively like political question it's just like the, the, the shit breaks you have to go and fix it like right and and as long as that shit's like not actively threatening to kill somebody it just it'll take forever you know um whatever it is whether it's whether it's a crack in the street whether it's uh whether it's you know building a uh, a new station whether it's just like anything anything at all yeah. it takes forever and like why why that reminds me, New York is where this sort of caretaker government situation started. I mean, New York, 1976, when uh, when the banks refused to buy the bonds and then the city became beholden to, you know, and, and, and Gerald Ford, you know, the famous headline. Uh, yeah. What is this? Uh, Ford, Ford to city, uh, drop dead. Ford to city, drop dead. And um, uh, who was the who was the mayor? Uh, David Dinkins, maybe? No, no, um, no. This was well before Dinkins. Uh, Dinkins became mayor in like nineteen ninety. Oh no, it's it's Abe, the first Jewish mayor. It's Abe Beam. Uh, Abe Beam yeah, was Abe the mayor. Beam, that's right. Abe, Abe Beam. Uh, yeah, Abraham Beam. Uh, and uh, I believe, I mean, you know, it, presaging uh, uh, other sorts of developments. You know, uh, I believe Al Shanker had to come in and basically the uh, uh, perform like sort of the J.P. Morgan role of that crisis. But instead of, uh, you know, being an incredibly wealthy banker who could just sort of get everyone in the room and say, uh, look, I know it's against our short term interest to uh, to bail out the U.S. economy, but we, this is the cash cow. We need to keep it going, which is what happened in 1907 or whenever that panic was. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, Shanker basically uh, was the in incredibly powerful head of the teachers union. And, you know, I, as, as, as I remember it, it, you know, essentially the teachers took a big haircut on their pensions in order for the, the uh, city to keep functioning. Um, and ever since then, of course, you know, the mayor of New York has basically been, yeah, well, I mean, not really in the driver's seat, let's say. And, and the, you know, you see all sorts of things like the, sub, the subway is always on fire and there's potholes that go fi unfixed for however many years and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think you can separate the fact that nothing is possible and nothing gets done and nothing happens and politicians have no agency and really want no agency from the fact that the entire economy is just a nested series of Ponzi schemes and multi-level marketing uh, scams. You know, I mean, how, how much of the value of like the kinds of financial transactions that happen every day are for instance, just like the complete fiction that is uh, cryptocurrency for instance. Uh, because here, here's what it is. It's a perfect encapsulation of the so-called economy because here's what it is. So let's say, let's say like there's three things that usually accompany the manufacture of something. There's like the thing itself, there's the price of the thing, and then there's like the, the price of the externalities, the pollution or whatever, the, the sort of the uh, detritus of the manufacturing process. 
Cryptocurrency creates a massive amount of detritus of the process. It creates massive amounts of financialization of the product, but there is no product. It's literally just running your car in the garage. It's nothing. It is nothing. And the thing is, uh, you know, what could be a better metaphor for like the, the fact that, that, you know, the entire, like where all the money is and like what's, you know, it's not the Staples Center now, it's the crypto.com center or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, like crypto.com is probably worth more money than the Lakers, which is insane. The Lakers are a real thing. You can like turn on the TV and watch them. They have one of the most famous people in the world and one of, you know, the best basketball player of all time. He's bringing the ball up the court for him and he's passing to, you know, one of the best big men of his generation. They won a title two years ago. They're, you know, they're not very good this year, but like they could be okay. Millions of people, like their days, the contours of their days are related to what the Lakers do. A Bitcoin is nothing. The Bitcoin is literally nothing. One of the things I I find this so interesting is like all all these crypto people, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they're, they're now buying these tungsten cubes. Yes. Yes. Uh, The tungsten cubes, man. I I think that there's some kind of psychic transference going on here where it's like, they know that their Bitcoins are nothing. And like, what could be more something than like an incredibly dense cube? They're, They're literally paying for the right to go to a place once a year and touch a cube. And, like, when I first read about this, I was like, this has to be some kind of, like, performance art, right? Because, like, nobody <laughs> in their right mind would do this. Um, but it but it doesn't seem to be. Like, these people seem to be completely serious. I, I don't know. It's hard for me to, like, imagine that, like, it is. But I guess it is. They're not in their right mind. And I don't mean that, like, oh, it's so stupid to, to invest in Bitcoin. Because obviously it's not. Obviously it's, you know, at a certain point, it was one of the best things possible that you could do under the sort of the terms and conditions of the way we live. But they're not in their right mind because think about how insane you would be driven if you owned, you know, over a million dollars in assets. But, you know, in in many cases, hundreds, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in assets that, you know, in your heart and in the deep recesses of your mind is literally nothing that at any moment, you know, the emperor could be revealed to have no clothes and you would be left with nothing because it is nothing. I think in some kind of psychic way, these cubes represent that because they're like they are like incredibly dense you know they like you pick them up apparently and they're like you know they're they weigh way more than you would ever expect something that size to weigh tungsten is one of the densest uh materials uh densest uh, elements uh, uh in existence just for 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 uh, for the edification of our listeners <laughs> Right. So you pick up like a little golf ball sized piece of tungsten and it feels like maybe, you know, it's quite heavy. It's the weight of uh, I don't know what it's the weight of, but it's the weight of something much heavier than that. Yeah. Uh, and and I guess my point is just sort of like I, I think living on top of all of that, all of these Ponzi schemes and all of these multi-level marketing scams. Well, I mean, it does create this sort of psychic discomfort with that on on some level. But I do. I also think it means that like you're not so much in the driver's seat if you're the president you're on the top of this very precarious house of cards and i i understand to some extent like why as someone who's who's sort of like one of these caretaker presidents doesn't really feel that they can do anything because at the end of the day i think that like whether whether they're like talking about this with their economic advisors or if they just sort of deeply feel it in a way that i think we can all deeply feel it but like the reckoning is coming for this shit we can't just keep running the car in the garage and calling it a you know $50,000 Bitcoin forever. At some point, there is going to be like a massive, massive reckoning for all this shit. 
and it's all going to be revealed to be fake and then god knows what's going to happen you know yeah nobody wants to be stuck holding the bag right and i mean you know on some level you just don't want to upset the apple cart when things are so so precarious and uh i mean i i, I kind of get that on some level i feel like at some point you know every every president I mean, I assume they're not like normal enough people to act for this actually to happen. But, you know, you kind of imagine this ritual where it's like uh, someone who's who's, you know, fairly like normal and well adjusted. They go into the room with all the people who tell them, oh, the terrorists are going to blow us up. And now uh, you actually don't know if there's hundreds of things that we foil every single day. And then, you know, you kind of come out of that being like, oh, boy, I guess I'm not going to do all those military reforms that I was going to do. And then you go into the meeting with all the the finance people or whatever, and they're like, Oof, let me tell you, like, you better not try anything funny here because, y you know, just think about what could happen if if this goes kaput and that goes kaput and um, suddenly, you know, 20% unemployment and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, and then suddenly, you you know, you come out of that meeting going, Oof, man, I, I don't know if I want to do anything with the economy either, you know. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, uh, honestly, I think that most of the people who become president, they already know those things before. They don't need that sort of scared straight talk when they get into office because they are not, you don't get to be a person who's president elect by like wanting to do anything. Um, but uh, other than of course, be president, which is, you know, I mean, God, who, who would want to do that too? It's just the only the most psychotic, insane people in the world, which is of course, you know, another problem. Well, but that's uh, exactly the kind of people who get elected, right? <laughs> exactly. You just got to be like this, this perfect, like, cipher and husk you know uh or really famous in donald trump's case in addition to those things that's right um and you know just like this masterful media performer it's it says i think it says something about the excesses of of our, our form of capitalism in this era of the declining rate of profit and certainly the declining the disappearance of like real profit you know <laughs> like all the profit is just sort of like, well, there's a lot of fake money kind of floating around at the top of the economy. And, you know, you can sort of bet big on weird random things and then you can make a lot of it. But like, you know, on some level, Donald Trump is, uh, you know, he's a, a master of television. He's someone who uh, knows how to get both positive and negative attention directed at him uh, in a way that very few other people can. And like, his as as just like sort of pieces of performance art like the way that he speaks and the things that he says have like a massive amount of entertainment value even if you just hate him you know with any if you can have any sort of detachment from you know ironic distance from what's happening and just sort of understand that I, I'm, a, I'm one person what the hell am i supposed to do about this am i supposed to just be mad all the time then you can take that step back and acknowledge like okay this guy's really funny and like on some level like I understand why people like watching him. Now, I, I'm able to say that a little bit more with some reserve, with some distance from his actual presidency, because at during the time of his presidency, the media seeking to profit from this fact made it impossible to escape him for like ever. He was just, it was just like, you couldn't even, you couldn't even like feel most of the time like, haha, that, that guy's funny because he was just being crammed down your throat as someone you have to think about and care about and be mad about or be happy about or have some kind of feeling toward at all, you know, every day, basically all day. And it, that kind of ruined the aesthetic experience of Trump, which is, you know, funny to say, I guess, 
it's obviously not something really worth caring about that much, but like, it's, it is sort of a once in a lifetime, well, hopefully a once in a lifetime thing to have someone as crass, stupid, you know, performative, uh, but also like good at being on TV as Donald Trump as a president and just sort of like being able to kind of sit back and marvel in that fact. And, but then just like not being able to do that because the profit motive of, of the media companies is just to like cram it down your throat, how much this guy exists, you know? And I mean, kudos to him for being able to like sort of ride that wave and like, cause I mean, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to be someone who's like on all the channels now. Another interesting thing about Trump is he was sort of like in the last generation of people who were on TV when, when being on TV was really being on TV, you know? Yeah. Cause like now, you know, being, having an NBC show, I mean, how many people watch a fucking NBC show? You know, there's like 8 million channels and they all, you know, none of them are, are you know, very few of them are primarily consumed in like a synchronous manner, you know? Yeah. But Trump was on the tail end of that. He was in the, sort of the, the Bush era, like, you know, like really on TV in a way that uh, people aren't now. And so he's more famous than people who are on TV now can ever aspire to be. And somehow he was able to wrangle all that attention straight to him, uh, you know, by becoming president. And I mean, and, and also just being like acting as a president in a way that no one else possibly could, which isn't to say actually doing anything, because of course he didn't do anything either. This, the bit about Trump it kind of made me think about the way that he presented himself and the way that he, you know, the way that he campaigned, especially in like the in 2016, where obviously he didn't do anything because he was and, and you know, if you know anything about like Donald Trump and American politics in general, like you could predict that he wasn't going to do anything. And if he did do something, it would be bad, uh, you know, which is what happened. But um Right. One I of mean, the, presidents, me, presidents do anything, don't do really that much to begin with. And he's like one of the laziest, if not the laziest people ever to be president. But, what, so. but what's interesting is that like the affect that he put up when he uh, was when he was campaigning was all about like, oh, well, we're going to do stuff. We're going to like bring back like an America that does things. It's like, well, OK, that didn't happen. You're going to be sick. You're going to be sick and tired of how much we're winning. That's right. We're You're going to be sick and tired of all the winning. But but. But what's interesting is that, you know, that did resonate with a lot of people, right? That yeah. like, uh, if you are like a marginal, uh, non-politics attention payer, and you hear somebody who's like, yeah, like we should just we should just do the stuff. You're like, yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Like, why why don't we do the stuff, right? Uh, and if you're not, especially if you're not too concerned about like the uh, sort of the cultural angles, or maybe you're even somewhat sympathetic to them, you're like, okay, yeah, I could see that. Like uh, this guy just he just wants to do things. Like why why don't we do things? It's a very like understandable impulse. Oh yeah, I think if you if you're just kind of uh, like a person who tunes in every four years and you like look at the look at the presidential race and you're like like huh like what's uh um what's on offer. Like, oh, this guy, this guy's saying uh, we're going to do some cool stuff. All right, let's do that. And that's, I think that was especially like such a, a contrast with the, the Clinton campaign, which was basically had nothing to do with doing anything. I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting. People talk about how Trump ran this like aesthetic campaign that didn't talk about any policy. No, no, no. I mean, he ran much more of a policy campaign than Hillary did, despite whatever plans she had on her website. Or whatever. I wouldn't call it like a policy campaign, right? It's right. like, I mean, because the word policy like implies that there is a sort of like um I guess it has a different connotation at this point, but when he right, of course, I, I, what I would call it is he he it was an action oriented campaign, right? Uh, yeah. Whether you know the the aesthetics of it anyway. 
Well, and I, I guess that that difference is incredibly operative too, because the you know who likes plans and you know that kind of stuff is college people. The people who don't like who don't like Trump, they're all you know most. I mean, most of them are college people. They went to college. They they have this notion of like sort of advancement in careers and that kind of stuff, and they have a set of sort of inculcated uh, cultural folkways around like propriety and things like that. That of course is you know complete anathema to. To the way that Trump does things, and they like policy, and and Trump, the people who like Trump like action. But I mean, at the end of the day, they are the same thing. It's just one of them is like the you know Latinate form for for college people to think that you know it's like doing homework, but for politics, you know. Well, one of them, one of them has uh, has white papers, and the other one doesn't have white papers, but uh, <laughs> they tend they tend to accomplish about the same amount of stuff. I think you're 100% right that it's there is a total there's totally a difference there and an incredibly operative difference because if Trump had come out and said, "Oh, we have the best white papers." Yes. We're we're going to we, you should look at my website, see all my plans. Uh, you know, if he if he'd said stuff like that, then, you know, it's maybe impossible that wouldn't have been to quite imagine. As it's impossible yeah, to imagine. I mean, him it really that. is. We've done all the homework. At the end of the day, like people do I think do have this desire for politics to do something and they do I think understand at the end of the day that like, you know, it doesn't do anything because, hey, things keep getting, well, things stay the same, but they keep getting a little bit worse, you know? And so somebody who comes in and says that we're going to do, we're going to do stuff that has uh, appeal. And I mean, it has appeal to, 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 to college people too, you know, uh, it has appeal to educated PMC, whatever you want to call it. Y- you know, there's a reason people liked Elizabeth Warren who went, you know, uh, she had plans. I mean, there's a reason people like Bernie Sanders, he didn't say, you know, he didn't quite couch it in the same affective way, but like, he was going to do things. Biden, I guess, I guess he was going to build back better. Uh, he was going to not be Trump. I mean, that's doing something. That's doing a big service to these people who really don't like Trump. So at the end of the day, I think that's probably the most important thing that he does every single day. He, he goes out there and he's not Trump. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's funny because he's so similar to Trump in a lot of ways. You know, he's, he, 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 his, his brain kind of falls out his mouth every time he talks. And he's, he's very funny and sort of a uh, it's kind of unclear how much of it is intentional, tells rambling stories that seemingly have no bearing on the situation. He doesn't talk quite as much about like various like B-list celebrities that he was hanging out with in like 1982. Well, he didn't know any of those people, right? Like Joe Biden has never like known anybody of any cultural importance as far as I can tell. I guess the equivalent for that for Biden is like talking about like his great friend Strom Thurmond or whatever, you know, like. He has all sorts of like weird stories about like senators with terrible like racial politics from like 1978 or whatever yeah. that are basically the same thing as Trump's stories about Bette Midler or whatever or Luciano Pavarotti. I was thinking about uh, while you while you were while you were talking and uh, actually this goes back to the Bitcoin conversation. So I, I like I'm a software guy. Uh, I this is software engineering is my day job and I, I like my job. I like what I do, but I but I also happen to do something that I find like pretty interesting and that I think is, you know, generally useful. But, you know, if you're a software engineer these days, like you'll, you'll get a lot of like recruiter emails and stuff like that. And all of them will be like, come work for this, like startup that is some like middle, uh, you know, some middleman between like, you know, this business and that business. I got, I got an email recently from a recruiter who's basically just like, ah, check out, you know, check out like what for all the nice things that Forbes said about us. I'm like, all right. I just clicked on it just to, you know, check it, like, you know, find out what, what they were talking about. And then they're like on a list of like some, some startups that, uh, 
Forbes has put together. Uh, and that list is all just like, well, like we sell ad tech. Like we are like, again, like some intermediary between, uh, you know, places that want to, uh, I don't know, sell. Um, it's hard to hard to describe. But it's all like this. It's like very few of these companies like produce anything that you could like look at. and You'd be like, OK, this is like a tangible service or, uh, you know, or or product that like somebody could actually use and get something uh get something constructive from oh my favorite one of these was we sell you a software as a service platform that helps you evaluate the uh how how much money you're spending on software as a service i'm not making this up this is like a real thing uh they're like they were profiled in forbes with a little blurb and i was just like this is some kind of like recursive, like descent into madness. This is going on here. And I like my theory about this is that in a lot of ways, right, there's a physical limit to like how much actual physical stuff you can sell people. And so, you know, if you if you're like, I don't know, Samsung or whatever, and you make, I don't know, home appliances, right? Well, you can only sell so many home appliances to whatever the American market. And so your 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 options for like selling more home appliances are basically just like, well, we either have to convince people that their old appliances are no good, uh, which is, you know, just tough to do, right? Like well-made appliances last you a long time. Uh, or we have to like, you know, sell it to people who don't have any at all, right? So you either expand a market or you kind of like turn over in the existing market. And both of those are kind of like, they're hard, they're hard lifts, right? Because markets that are expanding, you know, tend to have less money. Markets that aren't expanding, like, tend to be saturated. So it's, like, a lot of work to, you know, sell people, like, a new refrigerator or whatever. And it's all, like, the, you know, the, the pipeline for production of, like, refrigerators is really complicated. It's, like, a lot of, it's, just like, a physical thing. It's a lot of work to make them. Um, whereas, like, software, especially, is, like, the, like, the platonic ideal of, like, shit that costs very little to make. And you also you can sell like an infinite amount of it, right? Like the marginal cost of any particular software like thing is zero. Uh, so you can always sell like an additional like some, you know, shitty metaverse bullshit or like you know, just like crypto nonsense or just any of these things, right? They don't cost any additional, like once you've made them, they don't cost you anything more to sell than, you know, than, than you were already selling them. Right. And that's where like, and as like, as like the rate of profit, you know, declines just because like there's a physical limit to like the stuff that people need, you end up like branching out into these, uh, into these, um, side, I mean, you, I call them side concerns, but they're not really side concerns. They become the main business. Like one great example of this is that Vizio, uh, which is a company that makes TVs now makes more money, like selling your data that it harvests from like you watching stuff on their smart TVs than they do from the physical TVs themselves, right? right. Because that shit is like infinitely replicable, uh, and you can just you can just sell that forever. <laughs> um, and and it feels like so many like so many things have been infected by this kind of. I mean, software is like the the cleanest exemplification of this because it's uh it's just like so like so direct about it. But so many things have been infected by this virus where like doing stuff is hard, but like generating data about stuff that other people are doing is like, eh, it's, I mean, it's doable. And so let's just sell that. 
right? And it's just like a bunch of people. It's like an Ouroboros selling like data to itself about itself, about all the things it does. It doesn't really like, as far as I can tell, this none of this really helps anybody in any meaningful way. But it certainly keeps the money moving around, right? It keeps like exactly. It, it keeps the it keeps people employed, which I guess is good. Exactly. Than if they were on the street, it just it's just like it has no productive capacity at all. Well, you know, we were talking about we were talking about Graber's bullshit jobs, and I mean, like, I think that like all these sort of interposed transactions, especially anything that has to do with ads and ad tech and data. As far as I can tell, there's no actual like empirical evidence that like ad tech and data actually makes money like for the people who are buying ads and stuff, but it is moving this sort of loose cash around, you know, this sort of slosh, these easy money that comes in at the top of the, the economy uh, that goes to the banks and then co comes out in the form of loans and like we can't do without it now, you know, there's just so much, there's just infinite amounts of money. I mean, was it like the New York Fed guy who said, oh, yeah, we just go in there and we add a we just add some zeros to the account and then there's more money. You know, it's like it's so funny. It's just like it's you know, I think we're talking I think we're talking with Marshall at some point And it's just sort of like it's such a like fait accompli that like this money, of course, has to be injected at the top. I mean, it goes back to like if you're making the homeowners or the bankers whole after the financial crisis, you could have figured out a way to do sort of bottom up cash injection in the economy. But you know, then and, and ever since then, and, you know, for a while before then too, the way we do it is, is it goes in at the top and then it sloshes around. And, you know, we have this giant pool of money that has to do with what, whatever, whatever defense is, uh, which really doesn't have anything to do with defense or winning wars, or, you know, it has to do with like fighting wars, I guess, to some extent, but winning them, not really, you know, more profitable not to win them really just to sort of be there for, you know, maybe until some old, you know, old Irish Joe comes along and, finally pulls the plug or whatever but like you know i mean uh, then a lot of it goes into these 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 ads these whatever digital ads or whatever and it's like well is it doing anything who knows if it's doing anything uh it's just sort of in the same way that like you know someone who has a bullshit job they might be like well i you know i don't know if i really do anything if even if the work that i do has any real function i mean i think you're exactly right it moves the money around that's what the function is for this stuff it's 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 you know it might be bullshit spending or bullshit money or whatever it is but like it's necessary it's the only it's the only game in town at this point you know yeah i i mean it's 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 just to say that like um you know this disease that seems to have like captured you know captured the state right has also kind of in many ways captured private industry as well because again so much of this focus is on again not producing necessarily tangible things that benefit people that you can sell for that you can then sell for a profit, right? Sort of like, you know, what you can imagine, what you would imagine sort of like the old sort of capitalist ideal was. But it's like, actually, what you're trying to produce is something that will generate subsidiary revenues that you can then mine for eternity, right? That will never run out because you can always generate more data. And so many companies are just like, are, are moving in that direction, whether they whether these are companies that make cars, whether these are companies that make, uh, like I said, TVs, uh, washing machines, anything. Like the whole the whole point of all this like smart shit that you know people are selling you is like, oh, we want to harvest your data so we can just like resell it. Um, it's it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know if I told this story on on a previous uh, on a previous uh, like show, but like. Uh, some time ago, I was in California. I was uh, visiting my family, and I, I took my son to the uh, 
to the Air and Space Museum. They have a wonderful Air and Space Museum in San Diego and in Balboa Park. You know, if you're ever there, you should go. Um, and in that museum, they ha they have a um, they have a turbine from an old uh, Blackbird, uh, the the reconnaissance planes that uh, you know were fly that flew in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and this uh, it's a really impressive thing to see, like just as a physical artifact. Because um, you take a look at it, and it's like it's hideously complex. I mean, it's a really, really sophisticated piece of engineering. Uh, it was it was cr created by Pratt and Whitney, uh, which was a big military contractor. It still is, I think. I, I don't know if they exist anymore, but you know, they were certainly big back in the day. Um, I believe they're now like part of the the General Electric. Like, is that right? A aviation en in engine concern. Although they, Pratt and Whitney does. Uh, maybe they still exist as like making lawnmower motors and stuff like that. Cause they also did that for a long time. Okay. Well, you know, they made this turbine, right. And uh, you know, back in the 1950s when uh, these, these were being made, um, you know, they didn't have like computers. So this was not designed uh, by, by, by a machine. Uh, there's no AI involved in the making of this thing. It's just like a brute physical object that a bunch of people sat down and they just like designed it, right. They designed it by hand and then they built it. Right. Um, and this is not to say that like nobody does that anymore because obviously people still do that, like pro big projects still happen, but it's just like an incredible thing to see as like a physical manifestation of something that was achieved with substantially less technical ability than we have today. Um, and yet it's so weird that like at every, every time you're trying to solve like, like a modern problem, you know, we, we do like way worse at it than like, than those guys did. Like, I mean, we have, you know, the, the F-35 is like this classic, uh, this classic example of like this, this plane that like can't fly without killing its pilots and like won't, uh, you know, it has to like uh, ingest like a terabyte of data before it could go on a mission. It's like, you know, it doesn't work. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. In military, uh, I, don't, I don't know what it means to work in military uh, terminology. In software, you know, when you have something that works 75% of the time, uh, that seems to me pretty to be pretty bad. Like, I'd be ashamed if something that I created worked only 75% well, of the time. Well, especially when the fail case is that, like, you know, a pilot splatters into the ground at, like, Mach 1.5 or whatever. Yeah, the fail the fail case is, like, your your pilot is dead. And, like, the, the $200 million plane that... Uh, that you purchased has exploded. Like that's the fail case, right? Right. Um, so but, I mean, you that know, seems bad to as, me. Sorry to interrupt here, but no. like as we were talking about before, these things are just like ad tech. They don't exist necessarily to work. They exist to transfer money between the United States and Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's why they exist. Well, it's a it's a it's a make work program for uh, for Lockheed Martin engineers, right? That like, too. But nobody who has ever worked on the F thirty five will like ever be fired. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in, in another 20 years, um, you know, the people who uh, started at Lockheed Martin in their 30s will be retiring or something, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the F-35 won't still won't be ready. And it's just like it's like it's incredible to me how this how this sort of uh, this rot is like has infected like everything, because at some point you would think like, OK, we're trying to build a thing. We're like working on this on this project. It's not coming together. Right. It's like for whatever reason, like none of the shit is like coming together into a plane that works, a plane that like consistently flies and does the things that we ask of it. So the next step is to say, OK, like maybe we're approaching this all wrong. Like maybe we should step back and like 
not do it this way maybe we should make a different thing like somebody in charge would have to come like say that right um and nobody has said that right nobody has said okay like we've blown a, a trillion dollars on this program to uh create like a bunch of planes that don't seem to really do what they're supposed to do like maybe we should reevaluate this whole question i mean like a pl literally a plane that blows up when it when it's raining i mean that's like that was like one of the early problems with it that's right yeah there was it has something I, I feel like it has something to do with like the paint that they use they had the special paint that was supposed to like camouflage it but then somehow that didn't play nice i i don't remember the technical details but but it doesn't matter like the, that that specific detail doesn't matter what matters is that like nobody has looked at this and said, okay, like we are approaching this problem in an incorrect fashion, right? You think you would think that even from the standpoint of like, uh, just like basic, um, whatever you want to call it, imperial interest, right? Like if I if I'm if I'm a big mighty empire and I like I want my big mighty empire to have a you know big mighty air force, like I want the air force to actually like work, right? I want the airplanes that the air force flies to work. But they don't. They they actually don't want that. I mean, they they're decommissioning planes that actually do work, like the like the A10 Warthog. I mean, the, the military fucking hates that plane because it's cheap and it works. And like the point of these planes is not to like protect the homeland or or win wars or whatever. I mean, that's that's an ancillary sort of like distant secondary function. The primary function is that the money needs to get from one country to another, whether that's like you know Saudi Arabia, but you know within the American sphere of influence, the money needs to go between the countries. Just like the money needs to go between the ad tech companies and the, the companies that are selling, you know, shoes or whatever. Um, the money needs to get from point A to point B. And the more expensive the boondoggle is, I mean, everyone, everyone benefits from it. There's no, there's no, except for like the pilot who splatters into the ground. I mean, that's the only person, <laughs> that's the only person who's really, uh, uh, you know, suffering here. Um, and I feel bad for those F-35 pilots, man. That's. <laughs> I, I would not take, I would not want that assignment. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just one example, right? I mean, it's, uh, and, and you can, you can always come up with like some like explanation for, well, you know, this is sunk cost and like we invested all this like research effort and blah, blah, blah. And, like, but then when you spread it out across like every single sector and every single, like every single sector of the government, every single sector of like pub private business, like just all over, you look at it and you're yeah. like, okay, like what are we, what are we doing here? What are we actually producing? Like we're shuffling a lot of what's going on here is we're just like shuffling numbers around and nobody wants to like, um, nobody wants to like, I guess, reevaluate that and just ask like, okay, which parts of this are like making our lives better and which parts are just not doing anything other than like, again, moving money from the pockets of like, a lot of people to the pockets of a few people, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, certainly like the, you know, the financialization uh, has a big role, uh, a big role to play here. I, I'll offer a little theory, I guess. My theory is basically, say you have, uh, you have, like you said, like market saturation, declining rate of profit. The things that sort of make the tripartite compromise of the post-war, you know, labor government uh, and, and capital, uh, that, that sort of tripartite uh, uh, settlement that existed maybe until the mid-late 70s, the, the sort of the big juicy fat profits that made that work, they're no longer so big fat and juicy. You know, you got Carter who comes in and says, the way we deal with this is we just sort of realize that like, are we're sort of spiritually suffering from all this consumption and that we just need to kind of like dial it back a little bit and make do with less and just sort of that ennobles us in some way. And of course, you know, 
that was a big political mistake. Nobody really appreciated that. You know, Reagan comes in and he just basically lies to everyone and says, oh, don't worry, we're going to get to the good old times again. And the way we're going to do it is cut taxes. Uh, you know, he pr presumably he believed it because he was, he, I mean, he, he believed, he seemingly believed basically everything he said. But, you know, whether he did or not, beside the point. You know, then you get this sort of credit economy, you know, in the meantime, of course, through the Volcker shock and the economy became financialized. And, you know, that uh, a lot of the sort of political choices that were made at that time deindustrialized the country. You know, these are all sort of well known things. Oh, oh well, and I guess maybe a, another incredibly uh, relevant thing is that like a combination between changes in the way that people are taxed, changes in like, international like relaxations of like international capital capital controls and just sort of uh technological advancement in terms of like how m better communication systems allowed coordination essentially meant that like there were no more limits to how wealthy a person or a company could be and at the at the end of that what you get is a system in which everyone has to like run very quickly just to stay in the same place and the incentive is to just make as much as you possibly can and in that system, we see that like nobody, I mean, one of the things like when you're Pratt and Whitney and you got to make a big, a big turbine, you know, it takes a lot of time to figure out how to make a turbine, you know, uh, it takes a lot of research, uh, you know, it take, I'm sure it, obviously it takes a lot of time to build an F-35 too, even if you do it badly uh, or when Boeing creates a new jet or whatever, you know, it takes a lot of time. I mean, one of the reasons, <laughs> as I learned recently, one of the reasons that like Boeing was having the problem with its software that was, uh, you know, that caused those two planes to crash was because it takes so much time to design a new plane that they wanted to just create a, a modified version of the 737 that had bigger engines. But in order to do that, they had to change the placement of the engines on the wing. And in order to do that safely, they had to create a software program uh, within the systems of the airplane that would make it so that the airplane wouldn't uh, pitch up too much, or sorry, pitch, yeah, pitch up too much during certain like phases of flight because the, the, the weight balance had changed. And that was essentially the system that would, that would control the pitch of the plane and cause it, if you, if you didn't know what was happening, it, you could be confused and crash the plane, basically. I, I mean, that, I think that's just a perfect example of what I'm talking about here, where it's just like a sustained, a company in a maybe more like a mid-century economy where there's big fat profits to be had, but you can't, there's limits to how rich you can get and how big you can be it creates a much more like healthier environment for like investing your money back into the company because it's not all about like the next quarter necessarily, like just sort of like the, the material conditions surrounding your company make the, the, like the smart thing to do to, instead of putting bigger engines on the 737, which by the way, there's no real problem with. It's just, I mean, the 737, I think was actually designed and built like in the 50, late fifties, early sixties or something like that. Uh, maybe a little bit later than that, but it's a, you know, it's like an airplane that's like 40 or 50 years old. Uh, to, to wrap it up, I guess what I'm just saying is like, you know, we do, we do have this system now where the short term is so important and also like moving this money around is so important. And, and it, it, with that in mind, like the kind, kind, like big boondoggles and big sort of spending money with no real indication that it's doing anything like in the case of ad tech or whatever, or, or just crypto itself, or just people, you know, just trying to like all these crazy, like get rich schemes and bubbles and stuff that, that come when then there's all this sort of meaningless loose cash at the top of the economy and it needs to get down somehow. These things all have to do with, with the system.
it, it, they have to do it's not like we've become degenerate people or whatever it's like we live under different material conditions that make these the things that people are incentivized to do and like the fact that that those conditions obtain i mean it's really it, it is obscene i mean it's disgusting it, it creates all these like all this waste with bitcoin especially it's like we're like we have the engine on in the garage and we're just like cooking ourselves with it you know like we're literally like in the house dying of carbon monoxide while that's happening you know what i mean like I think that there's like a perfect storm of different, I mean, there's just, there's just a different, uh, a whole array of factors that go into that. You know, it's, it's not just that there's all this loose money at the top of the economy. It's not just that like the economies become financialized and, and it's not just that the sort of the shareholder revolution created companies that if they don't do well in a particular quarter, they boot out their leadership and bring in people who are going to do what better in the next quarter, because that's the only thing that matters. It's not just those things, but it's all those things together, coupled with, I think, primarily like the declining rate of profit. And you get this just like sham simulation of an economy. I mean, I think in the it, it sort of, you know, to maybe bring this full circle and, and uh, try to try to wrap it up. One of the things that and, and this is going to sound maybe a little bit less less coherent or maybe less grounded in maybe a specific fact. But one of the things that strikes me about the way that, you know, about this whole phenomenon is that part of what's been lost is just a kind of ability to imagine a different way of doing things. Because if you just say like normal stuff, like why, why are we, let's say, you know, relying on some, you know, Baroque public-private partnership to create, uh, I don't know, useful like useful stuff for us, right? Like, why why do we have this uh, hideously complicated system where you know the let's say public research is farmed out to pharma companies that then like spend a whole bunch of time like you know uh, defending their defending their patents instead of like making useful medicines, and uh, we end up paying for it, and essentially all that money gets transferred up to like their CEOs. Like, why do we have this like baroque system? If you say that. You kind of sound like you're insane because like it's been going on for so long that it's now become normalized. And so people are like, well, how could you possibly do it any other way? Part of what's been lost, I think, is just the ability, the the imagination that lets you kind of say, okay, like we could do this differently, right? We don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to take like two decades to construct like a subway line. It doesn't have to take like, we, we don't have to go through this like hideous process to, uh, you know, we don't have to let, let's say, companies foreclose on um, the intellectual property of that that would allow, uh, like, you know, somebody to make, let's say, like a publicly available version of insulin, right? Just to give one particular example. We don't have to do those things. Like, we could do all that stuff differently. And it's just a question of choice, right? We like, it's just a question of the bad choices that we've made previously. And like, good choices that we could make now like we could just make different ones if we wanted to um and this is where i think that the kind of that that concept of like path dependence becomes like really important where you find yourself committed to like a particular set of either policies or 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 constructs not necessarily because they're, they're like good ones but just because you've already like committed to them in the past and now you're like it's not that you're stuck but the they have like the, the form and impetus like an inertia of their own yeah that's very difficult to change and yeah it's especially difficult because like you don't know at which points to apply the pressure uh because it just seems to be everywhere and nowhere 
right? Yeah. Like you you just you just say okay, like well, let's do let's do it differently. But then, who are you actually asking to do it differently? Well, you know, it could be a federal agency. It could be like what if if, if we're talking about like research, it could be uh, I don't know, like a, a mayor. If we're talking about uh, you know local construction, it could be any number, of, like any of those people. But it feels like the responsibility for this stuff is so diffuse that it's hard to pressure, like find find any particular point of pressure where you could really like just push somebody and they would actually do it, like if they felt themselves pressured to. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of my uh, summation of like the psychic state of things, I guess. <laughs> I think it's true that like you know it's definitely true that like bad decisions were made in the past and that that those sort of have created this path that we walk now. And that, you know, good decisions could be made in the future that could undo those. The thing that I quibble with there is the we. You know, we made bad decisions in the past. I mean, who's the we there? Right. And, and I'm not saying that to criticize how you said it. I, I... Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the problem, right, with assigning responsibility, right, is that when you actually try to, like, say, okay, like, who made the decisions, you can, I mean, for, for any specific thing, you can, you can track down, let's say, particular individuals who are responsible. But the individuals themselves, right, they're, you know, again, to borrow from Marx, right, they're not, they're making history, but they're making it not in circumstances that they choose. So <laughs> at every single point, you're, you, you can, you can, ident- you can finger somebody, but that somebody is always acting in like a larger context. And so the responsibility is extremely diffuse. Well, yeah. And what I was just going to say is like, you know, there's a, there's a David Graeber quote. Uh, I believe Adam Curtis used it in his most recent book, which is something to the effect of, you know, we need to keep in mind that we make this world every day. And if we chose, we could make it another way just as easily. And I think that that sort of falls victim to the same question, which is like, well, the just as easily is doing a lot of work there. It's very difficult because, uh, you know, obviously I could make my tomorrow very different by quitting my job. But at some point, you know, if I stop paying my mortgage, the sheriff's going to come to my door and at the point of a gun, they're going to kick me out on the street. And if I don't have enough money to rent a place or if I, you know, don't can't move in with my parents or whatever, then I'm going to be homeless. I mean, that's just the fact at that point, I'm essentially a non-person in our country, you know, in the sense that we of course, tomorrow could all hold hands and walk into the sea that we could do that. We could all hold hands and make a better world. Of course, you know, those things are both possible. The prerequisite to that, which is the entirety of it, and this is the problem, is getting everyone to do it in the first place, getting everyone even like on the same page or even just enough people on the same page. When we, as we talked about at the beginning, we lack these structures that are able to take the spontaneous outpouring of human emotion, whether that's like taking to the streets or voting or uh, writing your congressperson or whatever, and turn that into into meaningful difference. The, all those processes basically just get they grind they they grind away in some set of gears that aren't connected to anything, and then the next day is the same but worse. That's right. It's not nothing. In fact, it is. I think it's everything that we could all join hands and make a better world. That's you know the 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 fact that that is a possibility, remote as it may seem at this point, and like the mechanism to achieve that handholding being completely obscure to this point. But the fact that that exists, if it didn't, if we couldn't do that, then what's the point, you know? Yeah. Then it might, then, then it's just, it's, we're just on rails, you know? But it's, I, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that, it, that thing, that things are just predetermined and that we are just, you know, headed on this slow downward course into oblivion. You know, I think that, that there's contingency and possibility. And I think that there's, you know, there's there's going to be shocks and there's going to be points when that when when 
something new can enter into this closed system that we live in and, and really shake things up. And maybe it'll take a long time for that to work through the system. But, uh, but I do believe that it will happen. You know, I, I believe that it can happen and I, I hope that it will happen. I do. I think it will happen. Whether I see that or not, I, I have no idea, but you know, as, as I think we talked about uh, in the recent past, you know, I guess being a lot, that means being alive to the possibility is important, as you said. Yeah. And I guess, and also just sort of ignoring this, this epiphenomenon of arguing on the internet about, you know, whether, whether something has achieved the proper amount of like in-group status for you to like bless it or, or curse it, you know? Yeah. Which, which is what really like most sort of politics, even like politics that I mostly agree with the substance of kind of boils down to is just sort of like patrolling the boundaries of like who gets to call themselves like a member in good graces of my, you know, me as someone who has clout on the internet's personal, like, you know, people that they're willing to kind of go to bat for or whatever. All right. Well, on that hopeful note, I think we should, uh, should wrap it up. Uh, so that, you know, hopefully, hopefully that'll give people kind of a, a preview. I mean, this has been obviously been kind of a very digressive conversation, but, uh, I think what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to systematically or maybe not so systematically go through some of these, some of the points where, uh, th that helped form this, uh, particular, um, this particular tendency that we that we exist on under right now. Well, and it's it's a fractal, like you said, you know. So we we can be just as incoherent at like a small level as we can at this macro level. So that's exactly right. There there are no <laughs> limits. There are no limits to our incoherence. No, unlike the the rate of profit, there's no the sky's the limit for us, baby. Got nowhere to go but up. <laughs>